Welcome to episode 311 of Live Happy Now. In just a few days, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day. But before we do that, we're going to find out what moms are made of. This is your host, Paula Phelps. And today, we're talking with Abigail Tucker, a science journalist, mother of four, and author of Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. Abigail has done a deep dive into the biology and psychology of motherhood, and her findings just might change everything you thought you knew about moms. And stay tuned after the interview to find out how you can win a copy of her book. Abigail, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thank you so much, Paula. First of all, possibly the best book title of the year, so <laughs> kudos on that. <laughs> and this is such a great book, so I really wanted to start by finding out how and why you started researching this topic? Well, I am a science writer by trade, and I'm also a mother of four children. And I was kind of amazed to discover this whole field of research into how and why moms function as they do that I'd never encountered before. And it was just, I just was floored. I had, I think, I think I had three kids when I first started my research and four at the end. And I didn't, didn't know so many of the things that I learned in the course of the book. And so I just became curious about sort of what makes me work and think the way that I do. And then also just the moms that I meet in daily life. What's up with us? How, why and how do we function? You know, and, and you do a great job of explaining that. And I, I really feel compelled to point out that this is a very science-based book, but it is so entertaining. And, Thank and you. <laughs> even if someone does not dig the science and they're like, I, I'm not a science person, this book is so readable and so enjoyable. I have to just say you, you did a wonderful job with that. Thank you. I, I find that the, you know, the telling the story of your own maternal experience is almost reflexive. It's like you want to hear, you want to tell what happened to you and hear what happened to other people because it was all just so weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I remember when I had my first kid, I used to stay home and watch TV that was on at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And that there's one called a baby story. And it was just about women having babies. I remember that totally, show. Yeah, exactly. And it was so comforting. I was totally addicted because I just can't get over the weirdness and the wonder of it all. So I, I, I felt like I had to share my part of the story. <laughs> and it's such a gift because in sharing it and in making it so readable and relatable, I think a lot of women are going to say, oh, okay, now it makes sense. <laughs> now I get it. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that there'll be a balance between stuff that people can recognize from their own lives and then also stuff that's just so sort of the mystery of the familiar, sort of like, I can't believe that there's actually all these laboratories around the country where people are studying me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think women will be really surprised to learn just the many ways that motherhood changes the brain. And, you know, we're not talking about that whole pregnancy brain that people talk right. about, but you show that scientists can tell whether a woman is a mother just by looking at a brain scan. So how does that work? Well, that particular study, I think it came out maybe 2018, maybe 2017, they took brain scans of a bunch of women before they got pregnant and then followed them through pregnancy and afterwards. And they showed how their brains were able to 
to change in almost a diagnosable way that they, the lab developed an algorithm and you could just kind of show them a picture of a brain and the scientists were able to say, oh yeah, that's a mom brain. And this is something that in humans is kind of hard to do because we're not allowed to, thank goodness, dissect or um, you know <laughs> do, do all kinds of crazy stuff to human moms. But there are also interesting animal models that scientists use to study the transformation. And basically what happens is that they're sort of, um, I call it the maternal instinct. You could also call it like a maternal awakening or one scientist called it a maternal unmasking, which I kind of like too. That's a Um, very cool phrase. Isn't that kind of cool? Where all of a sudden you're sensitized to these different infant cues and your systems of reward and desire are kind of overhauled and changed. And it causes you to kind of interpret the world that you used to know in a new way. And above all, It builds your relationship with babies in general, but especially your own baby. You're kind of hypersensitive to that baby's cues. And people, this this change we are talking about in the brain scans, scientists understand this as almost like a stage of development. Motherhood is the period of most rapid change in development that people experience outside of childhood. Like normally in adult life, scientists don't see brains changing in this in this way we're sort of growing in almost in a way that our the rapid way that our babies grow and that's fascinating because i couldn't help but think about how pregnant women and we talk about oh yeah that hormonal whirlwind that they're going through and then it's like when you think about it is this is it not so much hormones but is it their brains are changing exactly the hormones of pregnancy birth and lactation are kind of they're, they are really important. They're, they're kind of chemically incentivizing this change to take place. But, you know, if you kind of think about it, the way that we feel about our children is not something that's just like happening during pregnancy, birth, or even during nursing. Like after, if you quit nursing at six months, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly have a new relationship with your baby. The, those systems that the hormones draw out become hardwired and permanent and they don't seem to recede even after like the the hormones themselves, you know, are long gone. Right. So it just, it changes a woman forever. That's what they think. Yeah. That's what we think. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and you blew me away, like really before the book got fully started because we all think of mothers as protecting their babies. But you write about how fetuses actually protect their mothers. And this, to me, was fascinating. So can you tell us how that works? Yes. So in pregnancy, scientists know that a certain kind of fetal cell crosses over the placenta into the mother's body. And it's a kind of stem cell that's multipotent. It can become basically whatever it wants. And basically, so this cell is in your bloodstream for a while, but then at a certain point it becomes, it settles down in either your liver or your thyroid or your lungs, and it becomes part of your body. And there are labs that think that these cells are calibrated to go to parts of your body that need help, basically. Like I visited a lab where they study um, cardiologists watch how fetal cells 
flock to maternal heart tissue if the mother suffers something like a, like a heart attack that they would simulate in the lab. And what's fascinating to me too, is that while you have more of these cells during pregnancy and right after pregnancy, the cells are in your body forever. That means that since I've had a son, if you were to comb through the cells in my body and look at, you know, what's in my kidneys, for example, you'd find cells here and there that had Y chromosomes and they're his cells. And in fact, you, if you've ever had a miscarriage, it's also likely that the cells of those children are in your body too, which is sort of both beautiful and haunting to think about that our children yeah. really are kind of our flesh and blood in some way. Yeah. I, I found like, I, I read that part like three times because it just, it blew me away that much. And the way that you presented it again was, was very well done. And I just found that fascinating completely. And, you know, you show, okay, so motherhood changes our cells. It changes our brains, but it also changes the way that we feel about love. And can you kind of tell us more about that? Well, um, what's really interesting is that, you know, when you're trying to explain to somebody who hasn't had a kid, what it feels like, you might use the word to describe that relationship, like love or obsession, or draw from the ideas of romantic love, which in the way we live our lives, we often experience romantic love before we have babies. But what's really interesting is that scientists who study pair bonding, which is kind of animalese for, for romantic love, believe that actually it's this much more ancient maternal circuitry that's repurposed in these other animals like ours that do form pair bonds. And that maternal love is sort of like the original love that people ex experience. And that is kind of the common thread across mammals. And I just thought that was, that was so interesting. And, you know, it's just amazing to, to see animals transform it's almost like the baby is a kind of drug. They do these experiments in rats where and mice where in, in normal life, a, a rat who hasn't had any children yet really hates baby rats. Like she will, <laughs> she will go to great lengths to avoid them. And scientists don't like to talk about this, but she'll eat them sometimes. Like I'm, I'm a female rat who is not a mother doesn't like babies, but as soon as she becomes a mother or towards the very end of her pregnancy, it's like a really startling shift where all of a sudden she'll start choosing babies over food. She'll choose babies over even cocaine. Um, which wow, that's interesting. She'll choose babies. She'll cross. She'll do things that she never would have done in her previous life. She'll, she'll cross an electric grid to get to her babies. And in fact, you can do and these experiments... I have mixed feelings about them. They're older experiments, but they used to do things like disable mother rats in certain ways and make them unable to see or unable to hear. And oh. the amazing thing is, is that these mothers continue to care for their for their their babies, you know, basically through all kinds of things. And so I think that even just watching the way this neural renaissance plays out in something as simple as a mouse or rat tells you something about the nature of the love that mothers are trying to articulate when they talk to other people. Right. Yeah. Because when, when a woman says, it's like, I will do anything for my kid. It's like, listen to that. Yeah, <laughs> <Because she> <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so, and now is in parenting, is it nature or nurture? Because if you were raised a certain way, 
Does that mean that that's how you're going to raise your children with that same parenting style? Or do we have something innate in us that informs our parenting style? I I think how you're raised is really important. Basically, scientists know that maternal behavior runs in families. And they've done these experiments over like 30 years where they'll start off with kids and parents, and then they wait until the kids in the experiments become the parents and have kids of their own. And they look for patterns and they see that there are repetitive patterns in these households where kids do resemble their parents in terms of their behavior. However, they don't don't think that this is a genetic thing, that this is something that is basically built into your genes and you're destined, you have the good mom gene or the bad mom gene. They actually have, I visit a, a fascinating lab where they, they test for that. And there is a genetic component. Like I was fascinated to learn that certain agricultural labs, people who raise sheeps, a sheep and pigs are interested in the breeding of super moms. And there are, you know, there, yeah, because it's, it's something that, that helps them make money, but it's hard. It's complicated. The genes are involved, but they're, they're beyond our grasp right now. What we do know is that if you take a baby monkeys or baby rats and you cross foster them. So the mother is, is raising a baby who is not biologically hers. That baby frequently resembles its adoptive mother more than it does its biological mother in terms of those passed down parenting habits. And so there's a very strong nurture um, element here in addition to the nature element. The interesting thing about people is that we don't really have what scientists call fixed action patterns in terms of the way we mother. Like there's so much variety across the world in the way human mothers do things that it's like we have so many different strategies that we could deploy. There's so much potential in what we do that there's the environment that we're in, either the culture or the specific household is a super powerful influence. So what about people that grew up, women that grew up, in a home where the mother figure wasn't a positive experience, where maybe the the mother was domineering, abusive, something like that, how then do they know that they're not going to have that same tendency? Because I know I've talked with a lot of women who have that concern. I do some work with sexually abused women, and and that is a concern. Like, these things happened. Am I going to be this kind of parent? Yes, and I, I agree that that is a, a distressing prospect. And there are studies that show that, uh, you know, women who have had these abusive or very adverse experiences with their own mother, they can have observable differences in the way that their brains react to the cries of children and that kind of infant cue. However, it's also known that if you have a supportive network in your life right now, if you have you know, a great relationship with your, your romantic partner, especially, that can have almost like a rescuing effect on your, your maternal behaviors. And so none of this is set in stone. I think it's important not to, I was, I was stunned by how important the role of your mother is. I, I guess I kind of had assumed that that was just part of like Freudian analysis and like, let's blame everything on the mother kind of thing. I didn't realize that actually you could see sometimes in, in images of a woman's brain that the fingerprints of her mother. So I think that is something that's, that's so important and not to be ignored. And also to us as mothers, like when we're mothering our kids now or daughters, we're also kind of like 
creating the environment for our grandchildren because they're they are going to learn from us and and change due to us but humans are plastic mothers are are super adaptable and living in a positive environment right now can rescue and improve some of those long ago childhood traumas and being aware of that is a key part of that just oh, completely just, yeah so you know and you can consciously make changes and and take action Exactly. And distance yourself. I mean, that's the thing. Like when you're looking at this literature of what is quote unquote good for moms, it's all so particular. Like it's great to have a supportive romantic partner. That doesn't mean that every relationship is good for moms. I mean, having an abusive partner is worse than having no partner at all. It seems like in a lot of ways and same for going to work. Like you can't say work is good for maternal behavior or work is bad for maternal behavior. It's about you and the specific job that you have. And if you are treated well in your job, if there's an element of predictability in your job, if you've got friends at your job, maybe your job is actually going to be great for your maternal behavior. But if you're somebody who is forced into a really unpredictable job where you're treated badly and you don't have social network there, then it could be bad for you as a mother. So it's all so particular to the person in their t- in her time and place, basically. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Now, we know that raising boys is different from raising girls. But how does that baby's gender affect the mother? Yes, this is something that I was completely stunned by because honestly, (laughs) it never came up in all of these millions of OB visits that I've gone in over four kids. Nobody ever said like, oh, this is a girl and this has these kinds of ripple effects for you or that your son, these things will will be changing for you. But there are all of these differences that start in the womb it's thought that boys act slightly differently in, in there and maybe are a little bit more, more active in certain ways. Mothers of boys are more likely to have a lot of complications, including diabetes and C-section and even postpartum depression, which is a, a new one to me. And I think it's because not only are, do boys tend to be bigger and taking more energy from the mother, but they also have like this alien Y chromosome thing going on. <laughs> and so your body, there may be extra inflammation for these moms, but the, the, the difference is just kind of keep spiraling on. And even like the, the breast milk that you make for girls and boys is different. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I was stunned by that, that, that boy breast milk has higher fat content. And then in some animals, girl breast milk has more calcium. And then it even gets stranger than that because there's a small but fascinating literature on why you end up with a boy or girl in the first place. And it turns out that there are certain environmental events that can very subtly influence whether the mother has a boy or a girl, because you, I thought of it as a coin flip, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. You either have a boy or a girl. It's like, (laughs) but it turns out that in the wake of very stressful events, you're predisposed to have girls. And the flip side is kind of true for for boys that it's a, a complicated evolutionary theory. But basically, scientists have tracked births after things like 9-11, after terrorist attacks in France and other kind of really jarring events. And there's a cull of boys. Like if you look nine months after those events, 
there's an uptick in the number of girls that are born. So sometimes, I mean, mostly it is a flip of the, of the coin, but sometimes having a girl or a boy can actually be like a signal about the mother's environment and the kinds of things that were going on with her. Like there was a study at Columbia recently of stress and moms and something like 70% of the most stressed out moms ended up having girls, which is kind of what you'd expect. But nobody ever told me that. <laughs> so wow. I was totally, I was stunned. I, 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 um, I didn't realize that, that that was how it worked. So does this mean these, all these pandemic babies that they're going to be girls? That's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, it would never be, it, it would never be like, of course, all of them, or we'd all know about right. this, but it would be like a fractional increase and it wouldn't necessarily be across all women. It would be across women who were the most vulnerable to the disaster of the pandemic, people who lost their jobs, who lost loved ones, because the, but I, I, I do, I mean, I guess I, if I were to offer a guess, I'd say, yeah, we might see, we might see a little shift in that. What happened during the pandemic was that there were reports that there was a huge dip in preterm babies and premature births. And I thought that was fascinating. It, it was kind of speaking to this whole mind body thing where the moms somehow were able to kind of like hold on a little bit longer. And there is kind of this small area of studies that show that like women are somewhat less likely to go into labor on Halloween and more likely, <laughs> more likely on Valentine's Day. And so there's so much that we don't understand. And also the pandemic thing, you know, it, it, there's way more in play too. Like probably these women were not going into preterm labor because they were staying at home. They were, right. you know, they were more, not that staying at home is this, but for like a late term pregnant woman, like you're not out on the subway, you don't trip and fall on the subway. You are protected from pathogens. Maybe you have, maybe your husband was home. So you felt socially supported. There's a lot of other explanations, but there is this freaky science of like moms do have maybe slightly more subconscious control over birth outcomes than 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 we thought. So I don't know. I was just boggled by all of that. You just, you know, there's so many things that you unpack in this book that it's like every chapter is like, I didn't know that. <laughs> and it's it's just really, it's exciting to read. It's fascinating. And how can we now use this science to improve ourselves, like not just individually as mothers, but it's a two-part question, see? Like, how can we use it individually? But then how can we as a society use this information to, to really make positive change? Well, I think uh, that is a great question. What I learned was that so many things that, you know, when you're in the neighborhood or a church or a school community where lots of people are having babies, like there's kind of this social obligation to, you know, maybe send over a dinner or buy a baby rattle or something. And what I learned is that all that stuff is actually way more than being polite. These are important social signals that we're able to give to the other women in our world that say, hey, like I, I, I see you, I care about you, you're supported, you know, you're living in a friendly world here. We, so I guess like what I would say is that if you know a mom in distress and you think, well, I'll make her a dinner, that is 
absolutely the right thing to do. That's fantastic. But maybe you should make her five dinners. Like <laughs> that, like all yeah. these things are actually measurably important to people's psychology. And the other thing I would say is that I do think that there are some specific policy things that we could do that could help America's mothers. Things like postpartum depression rates actually vary globally. And that has to do with kind of the way that societies are structured and the way that new mothers are treated. And I think there's just kind of screamingly obvious things like paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, better care in hospitals and improved social support for mothers that would pay huge dividends to us as a society, especially since we've seen that maternal behaviors are passed down and repeat themselves. So what we can do for a mother now is going to like possibly play play out for generations. And so just to give an example, like in America, you have a baby and you're out of that hospital in, in 48 hours. In some other places like Japan, you might stay for like five or seven days and there you oh can gosh. kind of get, yeah, you can get your, your bearings, you can learn to breastfeed, you can feel comfortable and safe instead of constantly filling out paperwork the whole time. In the Netherlands, they do something extraordinary. They actually pay for a baby nurse to come home with you and basically hang out at your house for two weeks while you're recovering, which means that you can have somebody to help you with dinner and to help with your older kids if you have them, or just to like help you navigate these really simple but complicated things that new mothers confront. And, and, and especially in America, where a lot of us live really far from our biological families and especially from our own moms. And that was another field of research that I just loved learning about how important, especially in the maternal grandmother is to your own maternal behavior, like your relationship with her, not just from childhood, but in the here and now and how these are sort of an instrumental force across the world. In America, a lot of people, especially college educated women live far from their moms. And so having something like a baby nurse, somebody who can play that grandma role is kind of invaluable to, to mothers. And it's not really an expenditure. It's like an investment for our society that we recognize that mothers are developing, their brains are plastic. We want to show them that, you know, they are in a safe place and that we want them, their brains and bodies to kind of do their thing to the best that, you know, the way they're built. And there's things that like giving these women support and money is helpful. Yeah, this is so interesting. And I do think that you've opened up so many ideas that, as you said, like we can take this differently. We can interpret how we're acting differently and start seeing some of the shortcomings that we just didn't even think about because you really do connect dots generation to generation and, it's it's a just it's a fascinating adventure you're leading us on. I, you know, one interesting thing is that this idea of having a maternal instinct, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I was floored by these undeniable changes, the way that your brain looks in scanners, the way that you act, the way that mother mice and mother orcas act, you know, it's this night and day difference. There is a maternal instinct, you can measure it. It is in your body. It has to do with hormones, it has to do with neurons. And it has to do with behavior. At the same time, I think it's really tempting to just kind of like use the idea of, an, of a maternal instinct as an excuse 
to leave mothers high and dry. Like, oh, don't worry about her. Like (laughs) she's got her maternal instinct to fall back on and she'll be fine. And I just think that is sort of a perversion of this idea. And it's, we have to do both. We have to acknowledge the fact that this is not just some kind of like fake intuition type, you know, mumbo jumbo. Oh, I had a maternal instinct thing. No, your, your body and your brain changed and you're in some ways a different person at the same time. That doesn't mean that you're like fully formed or in any way invincible. And we as humans have to protect each other so that mothers can thrive. Great stuff, Abigail. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to see how this book does. We're going to do a giveaway so everyone can hang on for a minute, one minute, 30 seconds, and we'll tell them how they can enter that. But you've you've done a great job here, written a great book, and, and I thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you and happy Mother's Day. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That was Abigail Tucker, author of Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. If you'd like to learn more about Abigail, order her book, or follow her on social media, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. And because it's Mother's Day, we're having a giveaway. You can win a great gift package that's perfect for every mom on your list. Our swag bag includes a copy of Abigail's great book, Mom Genes, a pound of fire department coffee, which has become my favorite new morning drink, and all kinds of Live Happy merch. Visit our website or Facebook page to enter. And one last thing, there's still time to do some last-minute Mother's Day shopping at Live Happy. Through May 5th, we're offering 30% off all apparel in our Live Happy store and free shipping for orders over $45. So just visit us at store.livehappy.com and use the discount code HAPPYMOM. That's all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then... This is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.